Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to another episode of Goose Chicks Podcast, an all-women-led show, mostly focused on the band Goose and the community surrounding them, while also exploring all genres of live music. I'm Leslie Mack, producer and co-host, and on today's show, contributor Hannah sits down with sociologist and Grateful Dead scholar Rebecca Adams. They talk about the similarities and differences between the community surrounding the Grateful Dead and our beloved Goose. They also discuss the importance of demystifying jam band culture to make it more accessible to all. Hannah, take it away. As we march down to the Sweet William O. 
Hannah here with Goose Chicks Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Dr. Rebecca Adams about her research and her work with the Grateful Dead community. Dr. Adams is a professor of sociology and gerontology in the School of Health and Human Sciences at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. She also is the co-editor of the Grateful uh, Deadhead Social Sciences, which is available electronically and in print on demand. In the late 80s, she actually took students to Grateful Dead tour, and they earned class credit, which I had to say because I think it's the coolest thing. Um, we're definitely an inspiration for me, so thank you so much for being on our show. And today, we're excited to learn more about the history of the jam band scene as a way to sort of spread knowledge on our show, because the jam band scene can be a little gatekeepy. So I just wanted to start by asking you, what was it like doing that work? Um, and, and just in general, you know, what do you want to share with us about your work? Well, um, it's difficult to decide where to start. Um, uh, first of all, let me say that the work is ongoing. I'm not collecting data anymore, but I have a massive amount of interviews and surveys and observations that I'm still drawing on and writing more things about it. Um, I'm actually hoping to be working on the book that was my original goal for the project. I've gotten sidetracked by other books, articles, chapters, and so forth. Um, but I'm planning to get back um, to the original uh, book now that I'm on half time. I just started half time this year. Um, uh, but how did it all begin? Um, uh, basically, uh, in uh, 1986, when the Grateful Dead um, uh, were still touring, um, I went to a show uh, in Hampton, Virginia. My partner at the time uh, was invited to go by his boss. So I was going as a corporate wife. I hadn't been to dead shows for eight years because I'd taken a little hiatus for graduate school and starting on tenure track and all of that. Um, and so I went to that show and uh, it was in, you know, about six hours from home. So there were a lot of U University of North Carolina Greensboro students there and they saw me. So uh, the next Monday, uh, one of those students who had seen me came to my office. He had never been in a class with me, but he was a major. His uh, name is Matt Ross. And he came with photographs of a um, wedding that had taken place at set break. And he, he brought these to me as evidence that there was a community surrounding the band that he thought I should study instead of the research I was planning to do <laughs> on people who attended professional conferences and made friendships without sharing a territory. He said, oh, deadheads do that too. And students will be a lot more interested in hearing about deadheads than you know, college professors who go to conferences <laughs> yeah. or book editors was my other idea. So anyhow, that led to me um, uh, to bring together some students to talk about 
uh, uh, deadhead culture. And um, some of the students called a meeting. And after that, some four of the students asked to do independent studies with me. And I decided to do that as a way to kind of uh, figure out if there was anything interesting to study. They did a, a survey. Well, it turned out they didn't know enough about deadhead culture to ask the right questions. And so while the survey was wonderful, and by the way, we got back more, you know, this is when you did it by paper, we got back more responses than I Xeroxed. And so it was a very unscientific study. We had like 250% response rate or something, <laughs> which isn't how it's supposed to happen. Um, but anyhow, after that, um, uh, my department head was interested in this work because he studied blues musicians and fans. And he wanted to start something called the um, American Popular Culture Institute at my university. And he thought I'd be a good, you know, person to take a class on tour with the dead. It was really his idea. <laughs> and um, one thing led to another, and I did that. And during that summer, I had 21 students, two graduate assistants, and a film crew with me. But during that uh, summer, we did a lot of research, uh, and I realized that there was more to it than just one article, which is what, um, which is what I thought that uh, uh, I would be writing. Uh, and I basically um, began um, what became a very long project doing observations in different kinds of um, research on the dead. I would, I would, when deadheads would want to help me, that's why I made up questionnaires and sent them out through the mail because I didn't have anything most deadheads could do to help me. And so I, I did several surveys. Of course, I did observations at, at many, 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 many shows. Um, and I've been working with those data since then. Um, and I think, you know, it's also important to recognize the role of the class in helping me with my research, because Dennis McNally, the Grateful Dead's publicist, responded to the university's request for tickets for the 1989 summer tour. And he came in spring of 89 when the dead played Greensboro and checked me out, you know, to make sure they wanted to support me. And um, so when the class went on tour, Dennis met with us backstage and uh, he became an important contact for me in getting connected to the people who um, I needed to be connected to. Okay, nice. Um, gosh, there's so many things that I want to ask about as far as like the research stuff and things like that. But <clears throat> I also have been thinking a lot about the parallels and maybe some of the differences between the subcultural stuff that you studied and continued to work with and what's happening in the goose community. And so, and that's one of the things I'm actually interested in researching long-term is youth subcultures and what is it about shows and music festivals and stuff like that, where certain behavior happens and, um, it's sort of normalized in a way that it wouldn't if it was taken out of 
out of that context and put into a different context. Um, so I guess that's one thing that I've been thinking about is like, if you want to, if you can share more about like the, the subcultural aspect of it. And, you know, like you, you, you talked about the whole, like building friendships outside of different territories. And I think that's uh, one of the huge parallels we're seeing in the goose community. Um, my friends, I do the podcast with one person lives in Illinois Chelsea lives in Illinois, and then Leslie and Alexius both live in North Carolina. Um, I have friends, basically, like the people I see Goose with I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. I've never lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm from Ohio, but I never lived in that city. And so I think there's really something special there that maybe you might have an expertise in. And then I've also been thinking about the underground economy because um, the you know, the Grateful Dead are known for their shakedown street and all of that. And there's been conversations in the Goose community about trying to have more of that type of scene. But because we're dealing in the 2020s, there I think there's been issues with like getting permits and like, oh, this venue's not going to let us do it and that sort of thing. But yet we are starting to see our own version of shakedown street pop up. And so I think, you know, people who are going to that might think it's cool to hear about shakedown street and the, yeah, that underground economy that's literally went on tour with the dead, you know? Right. Well, well, let me start with the question of, of how it is that um, friendships form within a, what I would call an intermittently territorial community. You know, when you come together at a concert, you do have a, a temporary shared territory. And um, I'd be curious to hear if there is a a, a mental map of a, of the goose uh, community at a show like do you know where to find people and stuff yeah. we can get to that uh later um i i'd say that the most important thing that goose and the grateful dead uh share in common that's relevant to community formation is that they're improvisational uh jam bands okay i mean are the dead we're out there in the, in the beginning, but there are now many jam bands that are improvisational. And uh, what that means is, first of all, that you want to go to more than one show on a tour, okay? Um, you know, many of the bands before the Grateful Dead played the same show every night. I, I remember one of my students took me to an R.E.M. show where they actually announced that they were going to play a song out of order because... They thought it would upset the people who, who were expecting the exact same show they had played the night before, you know, someplace else. And so that's very important because in order to develop friendships, you have to have unplanned, repeated interactions without, you know, and, and so the music brought people together over and over again. Um, and, um, and that, I think, was the first thing, the kind of first leg in developing friendships among, among dead fans. And then, of course, once you got to the venue um, over and over again, uh, the chances of running into the same people would have been pretty low back when the dead were playing, you know, to 40,000, 50,000 people a night. But what happened is that deadheads themselves and with some, uh, some, uh, uh, 
cooperation of the band, actually developed a map of the venue so and the parking lot. So in the parking lot, you knew um, where certain people would be hanging out. You know, Shakedown Street would form. Some people, you know, the, obviously the vendors, but also people like to shop before the show would be on Shakedown Street. People people knew there would be, you know, one or more drum circles that, you know, certain people always hung out at. You could hear the nitrous tanks out in the, you know, far reaches of the parking lot and some people would be there, you know. So everybody knew when they came into the parking lot, kind of they would have their own little routine about what they did before the show and run into some of the same people there. <clears throat> And then inside the show, there were certain um, I, I in my on uh, my unpublished manuscript that I'm working on again, and I um, I referred to them as neighborhoods. Um, for example, there was this you know a taping section. Originally, that wasn't sanctioned by the band, but they. They sanctioned it because people were complaining about the microphones and the tapers didn't want you to dance or make noise. So the devs started offering tapers tickets and it became an official neighborhood. Same thing with the deaf zone. Uh, some uh, uh uh, deaf people from Gallaudet and other places started signing at shows. And uh, eventually that became officially sanctioned and even sort of required because of ADA compliance that came up later. Um, but then there were other neighborhoods uh, that were, well, and then there was the Wharf Rats, which I know still survive on Jamban Tour. Yeah, and we, we interviewed them for the podcast. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, you know, and they always had the yellow balloon. They yep. were often behind the stage if there was a behind the stage seating area. Um, and, and then there were ones where people got organized outside the show, like early on when the Internet first became a thing. Um, there were the, uh, um, oh, shoot, what did they call themselves? But the, the um, Oh, netheads, they called themselves. And they would they would announce uh, a spot on rock music, G-Dead, oh, we're going to be in this place. It was usually the fill zone. And, and anyhow, the point was that when you walked into the venue, you weren't facing 50,000 people without any idea of, you know, who would be where. There were rail rats, same people over and over and over again, you know, at least a lot of consistency. There were my class eyes met to the left of the soundboard. So for years after the class, the 1989 class, I would know, go to the left of the soundboard and see if anyone's there. You know, even if they didn't stay there the whole show, they'd go there during set breaks so we could connect with each other. Um, and because of that map, it meant not only if you went to more than one show, it meant that you might see the same people again. And those unplanned repeated interactions lead, led to friendships. People who met each other that way would begin planning to see each other at shows instead of just leaving it to what I would think of as a structural chance, you know, because there was a structure they were operating within and, and friendship 
important. And that's pretty much been my argument since the first time I started observing the dad that, um, you know, these things build the community. Also, outside of shows, shared symbols bring, you know, deadheads together. Um, now everyone wears the symbols, right? So you have to have, you have to have a pretty subtle symbol to identify yourself as a, a, a real deadhead as opposed to someone who bought the shirt in a department store. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, the symbols back then when I first started studying the dead would allow deadheads to recognize each other outside of shows and, you know, to talk about the experience and perhaps, you know, develop a local friendship with someone uh, who dressed like a deadhead. And then, um, you know, of course, in shows, those shirts were used to uh, distinguish deadheads from each other because, you know, there would be a steely with whatever your interest was in the middle or, you know, dancing bears doing something that you were interested in doing, you know, um, uh, and and so they weren't only to identify yourself as a deadhead, but to let other deadheads know what your interests were. And I'm not sure deadheads thought this through, but that's how they functioned, those um, symbols um, that were more specific. Um, so, you know, this just went on for a long time and and people formed friendship groups. And quite frankly, when, uh, you know, when Jerry died and the um, dead stopped touring as the Grateful Dead, uh, there was a huge uh, concern in the culture that no one would ever be able to find each other because we we relied on the maps of the parking lot and the venue to bring us together with the people we shared the experience with and who wanted to experience it in the same way we did and often didn't know each other's last names, you know, or let alone something like a phone number. Um, and so um, there was a lot of concern when Jerry died that it would all fall apart. Um, I always was pretty sure that the structure would continue and that those smaller groups that had developed in the context of Grateful Dead shows uh, would continue. And uh, that's pretty much what has happened. You know, we still have the Wharf Rats. Um, we we have, you know, Jewish deadheads are still in contact with each other. Um, you know, <clears throat> people who used to be on rec music, G-Dead, have moved on to social media platforms. Um, and uh, and so things have, you know, the, the friendship groups and the structure has continued and provided a foundation for all that has followed. Definitely. And I'm just thinking as you're talking about how that's so easily, the mapping is so easily it can be applied to other bands because already we see that culture of like rail riders. So like Alexius and Leslie, especially Leslie and her husband are diehard rail riders right now. So like I always go up 
at the beginning of the shows because I and I'm notorious for getting there later than everyone else. And I always go up and there's all these people and I'm always like, I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to steal your spot. I'm not trying to steal your spot. I just want to see my friends. And I get anxious and I say hi to them so they know that I'm there. And then I leave with my friends and go off and whatever. Um, we've also been talking a lot about how like there's something special at the women's restroom because we know that we are always going to hear like what we, if we can't find each other, the women's bathroom is like a good place to try. And like literally people will recognize our voices and they'll be like, oh, you're that girl from the podcast in the women's room. And so we have really like long conversations in the bathrooms at these shows but then we've also thought about like, is that because there are more women at Goose shows than other jam bands? Like I, the dead scene was predominantly male. And um, and so I'm just curious if you've ever had interactions like that or anything like that. Well, um, yeah, most of the estimates of the dead audience, and I'm not the only one who's tried to do this. Yeah. Um, but if you look at various surveys and things, and so it was about 60% male, 40% female. And I no one's researched this, but I have a feeling that men were more likely to stick with it uh, and that the women were more transient and dropped out of the scene uh, because of motherhood and other things. Um, and uh, the reason I think that is that every time they want to interview an older deadhead woman, I come up because there aren't that many of us. And I often get interviewed just because I'm old as opposed to my ex academic expertise. Um, so um, I have a feeling the women have dropped out uh, a little bit more. Um, and of course, some of the surveys show uh, even more men, a higher percentage of men, but those are ones that are focused on things like tape traders and set list and things, which uh, uh, were in the in the days something uh, men were more likely to be in involved in than women. Um, but in terms of the bathroom <laughs> and the woman's <laughs> room, uh, let me just say that um, uh, I noticed that that was often. Um, uh, a place of retreat for women, even back when the Grateful Dead were on tour with Jerry in the lead. Um, and, and in fact, uh, I have a very close friend who's also a Grateful Dead scholar, Mary Goodenow, uh, who I initially met in a bathroom and then uh, didn't know her name or anything. And then I heard her in the bathroom at a show and that's where we connected <laughs> so um I had literally used a bathroom that she was taking a shower in and talked to her through the shower curtain and later met her uh at a show also in a woman's room um and one of my show buddies my actually my main show buddy for Grateful Dead shows when I would go to the women's room during a show he would say well what did you learn in the women's room, you know, because I'd get all the news on what was going on on tour and stuff. Um, so I, I never thought of that as part of the map. Um, and um, I don't know, what is the, do you think the percentage of uh, female in Goose Show's audiences is? We have not ever tried to find out, um, but I know we 
um, collaborate with this woman named Ashley who does Groove Safe. So it's a it's a nonprofit that promotes consent culture. Um, she d does Fish Tour, um, Goose, some other bands that are also in that same jam band genre. And she is working with a couple of other women who are really into Goose, one of whom is a professor of maybe psychology or public health, some, some field where they do like large scale um, data collection. And she's working on trying to collect data related to consent culture so that she can make stronger pitches to the bands and the, the um, touring parties and whatever to be like, hey, like this is why it's necessary. So that would be something that I'm thinking they should collect because if they can make the argument, hey, 50% or 60% of your audience is women, you need this at your shows. Not, and not that Goose isn't on board, but in general, like not all bands are on board. Like Goose has been very supportive. And in fact, Peter, the, the keyboardist, will even say on stage, be kind to each other out there, groove safe, and will actually promote her message because um, it's it you know, he gets that that's something that need that that message needs to be shared with with fans. Um, but yeah, I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think anyone has been get collecting that data. And maybe and maybe I'll be the one. I don't know. Um, I'm not a quantitative researcher, but I have done survey work before. Um, I forgot to mention earlier, we have started getting tapers at our shows. I was at the Louisville run and there were tapers two rows in front of us. And we kind of thought that that culture would never pop up in Goose because they of nugs. Um, and they're really good about doing um, all their, like, as long as Wi-Fi checks out, they're still doing free NUG, um, the free NUG streams. And so I wasn't expecting to see tapers, and I've seen tapers at two shows now. Um, Interesting. It's, you know, and I hadn't thought about the fact that had NUGs existed, we probably wouldn't have had tapers. Right. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. So yeah. thank you for that. Um, that back to the thing about uh women it shows though. I I think that uh uh we have to credit fish fans with uh developing a, a distinctly women's culture it shows. It it just wasn't as noticeable at Grateful Dead shows. And I remember noticing it a fish show might might have even been before the dead stopped touring as the grateful dead i remember noticing that there was a group that was putting things in the bathroom that women might need during a show and you know putting up um uh information about safety and consent and things like that uh i do not you know i wasn't focused on that in my research so it's possible some of that was going on and i just didn't notice it but i don't remember that being a discussion i mean we did we did talk a lot about uh gender issues uh uh, over, you know, uh, with my various collaborators over time, gender issues have come up. But, um, you know, Deadheads had an idea uh, that they were more, I don't know what word they would have used, but more feminine uh, in terms of 
you know, being more kind and caring and um, being willing to wear skirts and, you know, that there was, you know, deadhead men had a sense of, at least some of them, of uh, being more, um, uh, more, on on the continuum than fully male. And I don't mean sexual identity. I just mean gender identity. Um, but that being said, there was a lot of gendered behavior at dead shows. Um, it, it wasn't an accident that the youngest, most beautiful woman in a group was sent out to get the miracle tickets. Right? It, it wasn't an accident that women were more likely you know, to be the child care people. It wasn't always the case, but but there were gendered gendered behaviors that didn't go away just because, you know, um, more feminine behavior was acceptable among the men. And and I call cooperation and caring feminine because that is what the research at the time would have said, you know, we've evolved some since then. <laughs> um, but it was really, I think, fish fans who brought a sense of women's identities and issues into the jam band scene. Cool. Yeah, I know Ashley um, is a huge, who does Group Save, is a huge fish fan. And that's like, was her main focus when she started her nonprofit. And I actually just went to my first fish show volunteering with her and in Wilmington, night one. And then um, I've connected with some fish chicks who were kind of part of the early movement to get women fans organized. And they're just so cool. And, but I know what you mean about like that identity of, like having that women's group. Um, all right. So gosh, you've shared so much with me. Um, I, I also wanted to say something yeah. about shakedown. Yeah. Um, because uh, I know that the contemporary shakedown at dead and company shows was officially sanctioned and that, you know, people bought uh, the tickets for early admission Mm -hmm. to get to shakedowns. I know it varied some by venue, but basically it's an officially sanctioned thing now. That was not the case when the Grateful Dead were touring. Uh, it wasn't until further festival that they had vendors inside um, the venue and people had to pay to set up inside. But the way vending got started was just on blankets in the parking lot and people would try to, you know, get near other vendors because it became a location. Uh, but it, it wasn't until um, vending became a problem uh, that, uh, you know, they began to officially sanction it. Um, the... Um, um, you know, the, you know, it started probably, I'm trying to remember, I interviewed Calico, who was the person who pretty much um, was in charge of the skeleton crew that uh, they were worked for the dead and tried to keep the parking lot scene under control. But I, you know, it started um, 
uh, sometime in the 80s, and it, it didn't become, it, people disagree on whether, when it became a called Shakedown Street, but it was definitely in the mid to late 80s. I've got interviews that demonstrate that. Um, but many deadheads didn't call it Shakedown Street until this recent rendition of it, which is, you know, really, in a way, this is something that Dead & Company kind of co-opted, something that grew up out of the audience. It it wasn't, um, you know, you didn't get permits or permission. You just set up in the parking lot next to your, your vehicle. And eventually, I remember in Greensboro, they were trying to get all the vendors to set up in one area just so that they could police them more. But that, you know, that was the, the whole idea of a shakedown street was just um, organic. It wasn't organized by the band originally. Yeah, um, I think um, what my understanding, I only know one person who's tried to organize a goose version of shakedown street. And she was local to the area. Her, um, She's the manager of this band houseplant that a lot of Goose fans listen to. Um, she does event planning and stuff like that in the area. Her husband is in houseplant and so, or partner, I don't know if they're married. And so she was very familiar with the venue area, what needed to be done. And this was in Louisville and they, was, they were playing two nights. So they were able to set everything up for both days and it was really organized, um, but it didn't. And I think she did, she probably, I'm sure, cooperated with the band, but it was like a fan who was like, we, you know, people are saying that we need to have this. And so let's get these vendors together and all that. And, um, I've also heard, like, I, I have connected with vendor friends from the podcast and everything. Um, and um, it seems like the vendors themselves are the ones who are like, hey, like, I make jewelry or I make tie-dyes or whatever they make. You know, let's try and organize something at this run of shows or, you know, whatever. And so it does seem like it's happening organically to a certain extent in the Goose community, even though... Obviously, there's that blueprint in place already. Um, but I think I didn't realize that, like, when you're talking about the co-opting, co like, that's interesting to think of it that way. Um, and, and let me be clear. Yeah. Nobody organized Shakedown Street yeah. originally. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. individuals deciding, I want to sell my shirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I, it's definitely a different era. Like you just, I don't know how you could even go about doing that in 2023. But um, so it's just, yeah, there's just like some differences with the era we live in. Um, but that kind of brings me to the next question that I was going to ask is like, you know, there were changes to the Grateful Dead scene over time and you sort of touched on some of those, but um, we're starting to see Goose play bigger venues and it's definitely changing the scene. It's changing even like, like whether it's the geography of a show and where people are hanging out now. Um, it's changing what kind of people go to these shows. Um, they do market themselves or like they, they say that they're an indie groove band. And so they get people who have never necessarily been to a jam band show before who are there because, oh, this new indie rock band that was on Jimmy Fallon's show, you know? And so it's just, it's been interesting to see that evolution 
Um, and it's kind of happened quickly because they went from playing like small clubs to having a show with 10,000 people. And so um, if you just want to, if you can say about like those changes, I kind of know, like, I know that there were changes in the scene over time, but I don't know a lot about it. Right. Well, when I was doing my research, it was right after Touch of Grey came out, you okay. know, which was one, I guess it might have been the dead's biggest normal hit. Um, and so there was a huge influx. The, the summer I took the students on tour, it was right in the midst of this huge influx of new people into the deadhead community. And it it created some problems because people thought it was, you know, any, any, you know, anything goes at a Grateful Dead show, which was not the case. Right. You know, in the smaller scene, people treated each other with respect. And um, and you know, there were unspoken rules. Deadheads like to think there were no rules, but there were rules. Um you know, basically that you took care of yourself and you didn't um, impose on the the experience that other people were having. And when the big influx came in and a whole bunch of people thought it was just a big party and weren't as into the music as, you know, people had been in the smaller community, there was a, a lot of divisiveness created. There were derogatory expressions that popped up in the darkers, touch heads, you know, meaning these people who came in and didn't know what the heck to do or how to act responsibly in a show setting. And um, it's kind of interesting you bring that up because as far as I can tell, the same kind of thing might be happening or might have happened with Dead and Company, bringing in a whole bunch of people who, you know, weren't in the darker season, you know, who were brand new fans and didn't understand uh, the kinds of rules that Dead had slipped by. Um, I see it on social media where people who are Dead and Company fans are disrespectful of, of older fans and vice versa, I might add. And that's because of the huge influx of people and not having enough of the uh, more experienced fans um, present, you know, percentage-wise to socialize the new fans into the culture. And I think that, you know, those big, you know, demographic transitions where you have new people coming in do change a culture and create um, hierarchies and, uh, and divide, you know, divide people into groups. Um, and I've just, I've been thinking about this, how it's, you know, it repeats itself when there's a new influx of fans. And it it sounds to me like Goose may be about to um, uh, enter an era where the culture becomes more differentiated and, and hierarchical. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, right now on social media, it's, you know, did you hear Jerry? Did you hear Bill Kreutzman before he dropped out of Dead Company? You know, there are there are um cohorts of deadheads. And uh, you know, it it 
as somebody who heard Pigpen and remembers his death, I've, I always find it kind of amusing that people claim more experience because, you know, they started a little bit earlier than the current new cohort. Um, but uh, it sounds like you're going through your first demographic transition. And yeah, uh, I think that there's there's already a little bit, I think like jam band scenes have that legacy of hierarchy and all that because like, so my best friend um, lives in Cincinnati and Goose was playing a bunch of shows at this little club uh, on the border in Kentucky and Covington. And so like a lot of our friends are not huge Goose fans, but they can always say if they're at a Goose show, why well, I, I, I went to the Covington shows and that like pe- that signals to people, Oh, you saw Goose before the pandemic. Cause they got, um, there was an influx during the pandemic. The band did a really good job of doing, um, like car shows and um, putting doing live streams and they would do live streams uh, that they would put up on YouTube from their houses, like when they were sheltering in place together and everything. And so a lot of people actually learned about the band during the pandemic and the audience grew, but like you didn't notice it until after we could be in public again, right? And then so it went from like these small clubs to like real, not, well, clubs, club shows are awesome, but to these bigger venues. And now we're seeing that happen again. Um, And I think it is a little bit like, I try not to be that way, but then I kind of take pride in the fact that I, even though I wasn't there, I was like you doing my PhD. So I took a hiatus from going to shows for seven years. Um, And it's not exactly how long my hiatus was, eight years, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, just being part, like, being able to jump into the scene, but, like, feeling like, well, but I'm friends with people who've seen this band a bunch of times. And, you know, there's that hierarchy, and people care about that. And, um, yeah, but I all, and, like, I'm sitting here, like, I'm trying to, break that down, break that gatekeeping down just by having this show and this episode. And then like, but I also know that I'm guilty of it because that's how people talk about these things. Um, As a matter of fact, I had my first student know who Goose was. I was kind of having a bad day and my students had a 20 minute period where they were going to be working on a writing prompt. And so I always play music and I usually don't play Goose but I did. I'm going to put, put on Goose. And this kid was like, you like Goose? And I looked down and sure enough, he was kind of a bro dude, but he had on um, a, a steely shirt and steely stickers on his computer. And he was like, I'm more of a dead guy myself. And I was like, oh, I was like, cool. Like I went to the last three shows in San Francisco for Dead and Co tour. And he was like, no, you didn't. Fuck you. And he was like, I can't believe that. And everyone else in the class is just staring at us. There's probably 20 other students in the room. And they're just like, did he just say that to our professor? But like, that's the kind of dynamic you have with fans sometimes. And, um, And it was just interesting because like, I didn't really mean to show off or whatever, but, you know, it is sort of a big deal that I was able to go to those shows for, um, especially for younger fans. And um, it was just a funny interaction to have. And um, yeah, and and you were talking about the store-bought shows or store-bought t-shirts and I do see a lot of Grateful Dead shirts on students and I never know if it's because they think the turtles are cool or the bears are cool because I've heard students say that or if it's because they actually, you know, 
like the Grateful Dead. So right, right, and, and sometimes it's their parent shirts, <laughs> you know, their vintage shirts. Yes, they're real, but the student, you know, is just wearing their parent shirt. <laughs> you know, um, that probably hasn't happened for Goose yet. <laughs> no, but, but we are seeing um, intergenerational families like the woman I was talking about in Louisville. She and her husband are awesome. They're big Goose fans. And then I went to some shows later on that run and uh, their kids had started getting into Goose and their kids are probably, I don't know college age maybe and so um they were going to goose shows on their own so you do see that and uh when you're talking about like um bringing new people or new people going to shows the the touch heads I think you were saying um I was also thinking about like you know you do see a generation of families at these shows where you have little kids who maybe are 10 years old and you have parents my age, you have grandparents, great-grandparents sometimes, aunts, uncles. And so I think when kids get indoctrinated that young, then and it's because their family members are into the Grateful Dead, then I think that helps to like protect against um, sort of people being there for the wrong reasons because they just want to go to this big party or whatever. Um, right. Yeah, I noticed it that I went to the Dead and Company shows in Raleigh and Charlotte, and then I streamed a bunch of them, including the final three. But um, I noticed at the shows I did attend that a whole bunch of people had their kids and grandkids with them, you know, wanting, you know, and, and it's it's actually was kind of interesting because a lot of those people were people who had not been going to shows and came back because final tour, right? right. And so they weren't as... Um, familiar to me anymore as some of the newer fans were who who you know had been going to see other jam band shows too but I took my daughter to Raleigh and she used to go with me all the time when she was a child she was my little research assistant <laughs> um she was also uh, dead. The she is the uh, person who defined deadhead in utero. I submitted that term to Skeleton Key, and she was the example I used. Um, uh, so she'd been to a lot of dead shows, and when we were getting ready to go to the Dead and Company show, she pulled out a ticket out of her little pack she had always taken to shows for the 2009 Greensboro show that the Dead played, and that must have been her last real kind of dead derivative show. I mean, she'd been to DSO and things because we're friends with them, but, um, uh, or at least with the Zen tricksters who ended up more, you know, two of them are in DSO. Um, but uh, it was kind of like, oh, 2009, that's, you know, that was when she was a senior in college. And then after that, she was on her own. So we didn't, you know, take her to as many shows. Um, to her credit, she came home for the dead shows uh, the day before her honors thesis was due at Oberlin and was incredibly irritated that I hadn't mentioned it to her and invited her. She found out at school, mom, there's a dead show in Greensboro and I'm coming home. 
Um, <laughs> that it'll be a reunion. I've got to come home. So that, you know, anyhow, um, it is very intergenerational now. And uh, in, in my, the classes I've taught on the debt over the years, you know, the first time in 89, all but three of the students were already deadheads. And then in 2000, I taught one that was kind of a hybrid class. Um, and I noticed those were a large, some of them were deadheads, but most of them were the children of deadheads who were trying to understand their parents' culture. <laughs> and then when, when I taught a fully online class this last time, I got a little bit of both. Um, uh, and, and then some people who just, you know, were music majors or something and thought it would be a cool class, but, but it has evolved and it is an intergenerational phenomenon. And, um, uh, I've noticed the, um, jam band, uh, audiences in general have become more diverse and, um, uh, you know, in, not just in terms of age, but ethnicity, mm -hmm. um, what people do in their normal lives, all of that has become more diverse over time, I think. Definitely. Um, I was going to say about that. Shoot, I forget what I was going to say. Um, something. Oh, I know what I was going to say, um, just with your focus on gerontology and like aging and stuff like that. One of the things I've been noticing was a theme for me, uh, for summer tour is meeting a lot of couples who were like self-described empty nesters. And they were like, Oh, like we love music, but we didn't get to go to a lot of shows when our kids were growing up. And now our kids just left for college for the first time. We're empty nesters and we're, we're going to Goose because Goose is just a fun scene. And like, these are people who like, you know, went to fish shows when they were younger, dead shows when they were younger and stuff like that. And Goose just appealed to them, I think, because it is smaller scale still. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought that was kind of a cool thing that seems to be happening. And I am seeing like more variation with demographics at, at Goose shows and stuff like that. Um, and you were talking about kids wanting to understand their parents. Like I was always resistant to listening to the Grateful Dead. My sister and I both kind of were. And our parents were big on not um, like shoving their music down our throats. And so like my dad waited until we were both adults to take us to shows. Um, and then we both ended up liking the Grateful Dead. Like I don't identify as a deadhead per se, but I go to shows and I really like their music. And so um, it's just interesting to me, like, I have a lot of friends who, you know, were, what would you call a uh, deadhead in utero? Like I had friends growing up when I was in college and stuff like that, who were like that. And so they were, you know, my age, but technically they had seen Jerry because, you know, they went to shows in the nineties when they were real little. And part of me was always like, man, I wish my dad had taken me when I was little, you know, so I could, I could have been able to see Jerry like, but you know, it is what it is. Um, and it just, but it just like you said, goes to show like, you have all different types of people at shows and all different parenting styles, you know. Um, one of our uh, our co-hosts, Alexius, she has girls who are like maybe 10 and 12 or 13, something like that. And they, her youngest just went to her first Goose show this summer. Yeah, well, my, I have uh, tapes um, 
you know, because since I was doing research and interviews, I always had a tape recorder with me, you know, it was before smartphones. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, I you know I have my daughter's reactions. I mean, she would observe the shows just like I did from this child's perspective. Um, but uh, you know, it, it 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 she definitely considers it her family's music, you know, it's her um uh she's very familiar with it and comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, I was I was a little offended when she went to Oberlin and didn't live in the dorm where all of my deadhead friends had lived when they went there. <laughs> and she she said to me, Mom, you know, they're all second. They're all first generation deadheads. They don't understand what it's about, she said, I'm going to live in the quiet dorm with the <laughs> second generation deadheads. <laughs> and that's so cute. Aww. Yeah, no, but it was um, you know, she was she was very clear that she was a first, you know, second generation, and it made her different than the newbies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I've always thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. You know, now she's 36 and, you know, it's a different situation. <laughs> nice. Anyhow, um, is there anything else? No. Um, I was going to ask you that. Um, I, it sounds like you're working on an, a, a project again. Um, we'll definitely share, if, you, if we can, we can share the link to um, the electronic version of that book that you co-edited, we can share that and we can share if you have like um, a website or social media or something people can follow so that when your next project um, comes out, if people are interested in that, um, I'm interested in that. <laughs> well, I do have a Facebook page that um, right now is connected to my university uh, profile, but I'll be taking it with me when I retire fully. It was originally called Another Year of the Dead. I developed the Facebook page in 2019 uh, because I got this idea. There was a 60s series at UNCG, and I got this idea of having a, a class reunion for my 1989 summer students and I got carried away and proposed all sorts of things. They gave me a thousand dollars. And so I, this time I thought, okay, I'm not doing this by myself. I called every deadhead, emailed every deadhead I knew on campus, alums, staff, faculty, students. We got together, eventually about a hundred people helped me with this. We did, um, we put together a Grateful Dead cover band called Spartans Play Dead. Uh, they did four performances that year. We had a psychedelic art exhibit. We streamed the long strange trip, the Am Amazon Prime uh, video that Amir Barlev did on three in three chunks and had gatherings around that. We brought Amir in for the last showing. Uh, we had a day's worth of scholarship focused on the Grateful Dead, and we had a, a psychedelic art exhibit uh, that community uh, contributed to, and we had a photo show. Um, the photography exhibition. And so we had a whole year of these things and I developed another year of the dead uh, 
to showcase those. There's like, it, it, but now I've renamed it the Deadhead Community Project, and I'm using it uh, to um, post things about research that not only I do on the Grateful Dead, but that other UNCG faculty and um, uh, students do. And um, if you scroll down to the beginning of the page in like 2018, 19, you can see the academic panels focused on the dead and deadheads. And you can also um, uh, you can also see uh, clips of Spartans Play Dead. A faculty member had a class produce the videos for us. So, so it's um, I'd love to have more people following that. And as I publish things, I'll post it there. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And I am very much looking forward to following that page and learning more about your work. So anyway, bye everyone. Stay tight out there. Bye-bye. And thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. so much, Hannah and Rebecca, for such a robust conversation. Goose Chicks Podcast is produced by Leslie Mack, that's me, with support from sound engineer Matt Dwyer, co-host Alexius Lipo, and contributors Chelsea Long and Hannah Liebreich. Special thanks to our sponsors, Ben and & Jerry's and Sunset Lake CBD for their support. We are a proud member of the Osiris Media family. You can check us out on socials at Goose Chicks Pod everywhere. Also, be sure to keep up with Top of the Flock, our exploration of the year that is Goose 2023 in collaboration with WTED Goose Radio. Over 20 songs are already Top of the Flock certified. Check out GooseChicksPod.com backslash Top of the Flock for details and listen over at WTEDRadio.com for regular updates and more. Until next time, be kind to each other out there and remember to keep it Ted. Osiris. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, a little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... 
hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.